0: I'd like to thank the organizers for the opportunity to come uh, and speak with you today. Uh, This is the first uh, time I've spoken to a group of physicians assistants. So I'm not sure if my presentation on these two subjects is going to be correct or not. So I guess the audience comments later will tell me uh, if I aim too high or too low in that regard. I'm sure there are a lot of young people just starting their careers in the room, and then there's, I know there's very experienced people uh, in the room clinically. Uh, so it's uh, a bit of a mixed audience in that regard. As I walk around the meeting, I'm very impressed. I mean, the large number of people here on a beautiful Friday afternoon is uh, one, one attestment to the, uh, to the uh, meeting uh, quality. Uh, the posters, interesting, the exhibits, um, it's a very, very nicely organized meeting, kind of meeting that I used to go to in dermatology when I started 30 years ago. Uh, the American Academy of Dermatology was a small, intimate meeting like this, kind of focusing a lot on medical dermatology. For those uh, who are, are going to be in uh, Utah next, week, uh, next month for the Maui Derm uh, Program at Deer Valley, uh, I'm gonna give the connective tissue disease talk uh, there as well. But I'm going to turn it around because that talk is a pretty long one and it's hard for me to stuff it into an hour covering lupus, dermatomyositis, and scleroderma from somebody who has to, you know, I can't throw things out. It's hard for me being being invested in these diseases for so long throughout my career. I want to tell you everything I know about them, but obviously that's not possible in the short time frame. So in Deer Valley, I'm going to start with scleroderma and then work down to lupus and dermatomyositis if we don't get through scleroderma today. So we'll start off with kind of the basics of autoimmune connective tissue disease in terms of how it affects the skin. Again, we'll be focusing on lupus skin disease, dermatomyositis skin disease, and scleroderma. Uh, again, if I don't finish uh, all parts of this, uh, this is my current email address. Feel free to contact me. I can send you a file containing the slides I'm showing today. They're a little bit different than the syllabus presentation file I, I sent in about a month ago. Um, so I'd be happy to try to field your questions if we can't get to them today uh, via this email address. Conflicts of interest. Uh, somebody's been in dermatology for a while. I've had a chance to interact with different organizations. Uh, I don't think any of these are relevant at this point. The autoimmune connective tissue diseases uh, are are studied more for, uh, in terms of pharma interest from the uh, systemic manifestation side uh, than from the skin side. Although we are seeing some progress and in, in interest on the skin side uh, uh, here recently. An old drug uh, we used to call Plaquenil It's hydroxychloroquine. Uh, We'll still talk about it today because until Benlista came along a a couple of years ago, a new drug hadn't been approved for for systemic or cutaneous lupus in over 50 years. So uh, we still use a lot of animalarials, hydroxychloroquine and quinacrine especially. I Still, I, I co-edited a textbook on this subject with Tom Provost, who, who's since passed away. Uh, as a reference, That that's a pretty rich resource in terms of the things I'll be discussing today. I uh, still get a little bit of honoraria or royalty from that, but not enough to, to be a conflict of interest. If you are ever thinking about increasing your income, don't try to do it by writing a textbook. It's uh, in terms of time on task and reward. Although it was a very intellectually, a very, very good project. The learning objectives officially um, to review the presenting visible manifestations of LE, dermatomyositis, scleroderma, uh, so that you can be prepared not only to treat those uh, problems in the skin, but to recognize how they can represent uh, what's going on underneath the surface systemically. Uh, there are these interesting relationships that. Uh, as, uh, as dermatology providers, we all have to be aware of uh, because we can be involved in, in really getting a patient going in the right direction because a lot of these diseases present in the skin. Uh, and uh, by knowing these relationships, you can get them pointed in the right direction uh, very efficiently. Uh, and we'll just do a brief overview of the uh, uh, workup of these patients and, and the treatment approach of these patients. But the focus is gonna be on recognizing the diseases through the skin, understanding the relationships between the variable expression in the skin of these disorders and the underlying uh, systemic elements of the diseases. Uh, lupus is a very complex disease, a very challenging disease. It used to be said that if you uh, knew uh, syphilis, um, you know, you knew all of medicine. And nowadays, it's if you really know uh, lupus, uh, you know a lot about medicine in general. Uh, It's a very uh, variably expressed uh, disorder uh, from person to person clinically. Uh, It's got various environmental impacts that can influence the disease differentially from uh, one person to another. And we'll come back to this theme, uh, the idea that these diseases as complex genetic disorders that are impacted by environmental stimuli, uh, they are all expressed in a variable fashion from person to person. Some people have just the skin manifestations throughout their entire life. Other people never have skin manifestations, they just have the systemic uh, manifestations of the disease. And then of course, the patients that have both, cutaneous and systemic manifestations. This is true for lupus, it's true for dermatomyositis, uh, and it's true for scleroderma. And as dermatology providers, we're kind of focused on the left side of the spectrum, the skin only, or the skin plus systemic uh, uh, involvement side. So when you think about it this way, you can uh, uh, you can put different clinical syndromes in, into these various places along this spectrum. Both for lupus, uh, the idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, and for relevance to dermatology, dermatomyositis subgroup of that uh, group of disorders, uh, and then systemic uh, sclerosis, uh, scleroderma. So we're going to talk about these different uh, points along this spectrum as we go through the presentation today. Uh, We'll start with lupus. Uh, From the very outset, lupus was recognized as a skin disorder, uh, and that was discoid lupus in the 1850s, and it was named because of the appearance of the skin disorders. Lupus, like a wolf, was gnawing on somebody's cheek to produce the scarred discoid LE-type lesion. And then, of course, the butterfly uh, is symbolic of systemic lupus, Um, a a sun-sensitive disorder and getting erythema in a bilateral distribution over the cheeks and nose uh, as if the wings and the body of a butterfly. Uh, So really, lupus from the outset has started as a cutaneous disorder, then was recognized Fifty years later, really, before they recognized that this there was this underlying risk for systemic disease activity and damage to go along with the skin lesions. Again, uh, the, a comp- the relatively comprehensive list of the skin changes that we see in just lupus. You know, we're talking about three diseases, and and look at this complex slide with so many fine print things on it. Uh, it is a challenging area, uh, there's no question about that. But by recognizing patterns and knowing relationships, you can start making some sense of this. Uh, I use the Gilliam classification of uh, skin disease in lupus. It's still the most widely used. There's some debate now whether it needs to be updated. Um, and uh, But I still uh, think it's useful framework for discussing the varied clinical changes. It's divided into the two red categories on this slide: LE specific skin disease on your left and LE non-specific skin disease on your right. What specific means is there's a group of skin lesions that you really just see in the context of the autoimmune features of lupus. Uh, but lupus patients can also get skin changes that's part of their lupus, but it's those same skin changes can be seen in other settings. An example would be small vessel vasculitis, which we're gonna talk about later. Certainly, you can see that in the, act, in the context of active SLE, but of course, as you know, and as you will see, uh, cutaneous vasculitis can be seen in a number of other settings, not really related directly to uh, lupus. So, if you're gonna be thinking about the diagnostic parts of the, in the skin of lupus, you're thinking about the left side of this uh, slide, the LE-specific skin lesions. Um, and uh, Dr. Gilliam uh, separated those into three, three broad categories, acute cutaneous LE, subacute cutaneous LE, and chronic cutaneous LE in the mid-1970s in his work uh, in both the dermatology and rheum- rheumatology groups at UT Southwestern. So we'll go through the left-hand side. I'm really not gonna be able to have the time to, to, to spend uh, on the uh, right-hand side of the slide. Uh, they're there in your syllabus. They're, they're things that do come up occasionally. Just a few rules about L.E. nonspecific skin disease. They tend to be seen in patients with active systemic L.E. disease activity and risk for damage in major vital organs. So they're important in that perspective. Um, And uh, they, they are often treated in the context of treating their active systemic lupus. So those patients with active SLE are going to be treated more aggressively with systemic immunosuppressive drugs, uh, systemic corticosteroids, other steroid-sparing drugs. A lot of those skin changes will get better with the treatment for their underlying SLE. So a biopsy of LE-specific skin disease, uh, and that's part of what specific means, is that each of these three categories... uh, Uh, Acute cutaneous LE, subcutaneous LE, and chronic cutaneous LE share certain features on skin biopsy, particularly at the dermal-epidermal junction. Each of them displays an interface dermatitis uh, with uh, either a cell-poor, T-cell-poor, or T-cell-rich infiltrate, depending on the different types of lesions. Uh, All three tend to have mucin uh, deposition uh, in the skin in association with that pattern of inflammation. And uh, we see variable uh, deposition rates at the dermal-epidermal junction for immunoglobulin and complement components, Uh, the lupus band, if you will, the lesional lupus band in this context. But be aware that the lupus band is also used to designate the older idea that if you just tested non-lesional skin, sun-protected skin, like from the buttock, uh, sometimes if a patient had active SLE, you would see similar uh, deposition of immunoglobulin and complement components in that area. So it's, it's good to think about the lesional and the non-lesional uh, lupus band. In this setting, uh, it's the lesional, uh, and we're talking about lesional skin, and there are these uh, deposits at the DE junction at variable frequencies between acute cutaneous LE, subacute and chronic cutaneous LE. So the spectrum concept as it applies to lupus and lupus uh, skin disease is, is represented on this slide. Um, acute cutaneous cell is familiar to you, going back to, to your undergraduate studies about lupus, that's the butterfly rash, the young woman that goes into the sun, gets a, a persisting uh, sunburn on her face, and then gets sick, gets fever, arthralgia, uh, and, and becomes systemically ill. So, that's the main form of the localized form of acute cutaneous LE is the butterfly rash, the the malar erythema reaction that can come and go fairly quickly at times, can heal up without scarring uh, uh, in between periods of activity. The other side of the spectrum is uh, chronic cutaneous LE, um, the classic form of discoid lupus being by far the most common subtype in that area. And we all, you know, we know that. If a person presents with classic discoid LE skin lesions as the initial disease manifestation, and for the first year to two of his or her disease course, they only have a skin disease, they're worked up, they don't have lupus nephritis, they don't have uh, other symptoms or lab findings to suggest activity and damage inside, they're in a very good prognostic group. They probably have less than 5% of ever in their lifetime of really suffering from. Uh, major internal organ uh, SLE disease activity. So there's something different about patients uh, who who express different components of the uh, lupus autoimmune process. Some express it predominantly and almost exclusively in the skin. Others have it uh, in the skin and systemic uh, areas from the outset. And then the kind of bridging group of of skin lupus patients that Dr. Gilliam termed as subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, first uh, in some of his writings in 1977, initially thought to be a bridging group between these two polar extremes. A group of patients that had non-scarring, photosensitive skin lesions that looked different than acute cutaneous LE, um, and and patients that didn't seem to be as sick as the average acute cutaneous LE patient uh, was with SLE disease activity. We've since learned it's been uh, that that group of patients was first uh, characterized in publication 1979. Uh, we've learned that they're really pretty mildly affected when it comes to systemic LE. Probably no more than 10 to 15 percent ever go on to really big time systemic LE activity damage inside. Starting off again in their first year to two of their illness as having uh, SCLe skin lesions. So we would, redrawing this slide today, we would push SCLE over toward the right. Uh, The uh, differences in ethnicity can be significant in lupus. More darkly pigmented individuals tend to, as you know, get uh, pigmentary changes when their skin gets inflamed. Uh, We'll see uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation initially and then you can lose pigment altogether. Post-inflammatory hypo or depigmentation uh, the woman on the right presented to us in Dallas in one of the dermatology clinics in the late 70s, early 80s, because her skin was getting dark. <laughs> we looked at her and said, boy, this looks like you know, acute cutaneous LE and we worked her up, and she had nephritis. She, poor thing must have been a stoic, you know, because she just didn't complain about feeling bad, but clearly had a lot of stuff going on inside at the time. Again, uh, we can see a localized form of acute cutaneous cell just above the neck and above, or we can see a generalized form both above and below the neck. Uh, probably no significant difference in terms of systemic disease association there. Very photosensitive form of, of disease, like I said, can come and go quite transiently at times. It uh, can heal up. The skin is not. You don't get atrophic scarring in this setting. Uh, typically, and the patient with treatment can look normal given time. But realize that not everything's a butterfly uh, on the skin is lupus. There are other things that can fool you. Um, rosacea can fool you at times. The, just the uh, erythematotelectatic stage of rosacea can give you red cheeks, and not much else. Uh, contact dermatitis, photosensitive drug eruptions, uh, separate dermatitis on occasion. Um, and so there, there, there is a differential diagnosis there, and we've all, who, who people who deal with lupus uh, are, as a subspecialty, get lots of patients being sent in as suspected lupus because they've got this skin change and uh, they got a weekly positive antinuclear antibody assay. But, you know, you repeat the ANA assay, it's negative, and you look at them and you biopsy them, and it's rosacea. Uh, so there's tendency to overdiagnose diagnose uh, lupus uh, uh, in, the, in the primary care setting. So a simple, simple uh, a- a- adage there is just do a biopsy. Um, don't worry about biopsying the face. Uh, you know, if you do a small three to four millimeter punch and do it right, you know, pl- fold it into the lines of the face, stitch it with uh, properly, you know, they come back a week later, you take the stitch out, you see them three or four weeks later, you can't find the biopsy site. The face heals really well. There can be very useful information diagnostically. So never worry about doing a biopsy in the face if it's, if it's needed. When you go into medicine, rheumatologists, oh, that's a horrible thing, biopsy the face. If you talk to pediatricians, uh, it's just the worst thing that you could re- envision is biopsying a child's face. But if you've done well, it can be very, very uh, non-invasive. Uh, the generalized uh, subcategory of acute cutaneous LE, uh, this involvement below the uh, neck, uh, the dorsal aspect of the fingers and hands, uh, shown on this slide. Uh, there's an important difference between how the hands are affected uh, with lupus and dermatomyositis inflammation. Uh, LE likes the hair bearing areas between the joints, uh, interestingly, as I think you can see here, whereas dermatomyositis likes the stretch areas over the joints characteristically. So we're seeing kind of Gautrin's papules over the knuckles here, but the knuckles are relatively spared there. Uh, early on this can be very helpful bedside sign. Now as the diseases progress and get more inflamed you can lose some of these hallmarks, but early on this can be a really good uh, bedside clinical uh, uh, feature of differential diagnosis. So acute cutaneous LE is a subgroup of patients, very photosensitive, non-scarring, typically a positive ANA because we see antinuclear antibodies being positive in patients with uh, active SLE, often double-stranded DNA antibodies, other SLE-associated antibodies like SM. This relatively strong association with active systemic LE. Dermatologists uh, and uh, dermatology mid-level practitioners do not typically deal with these patients they've got sle they don't come to the dermatologist first they usually go to their primary care physician who sends them to a rheumatologist or they go to the rheumatologist so we don't we're not primarily involved with those patients a lot their their treatment for their systemic le helps their skin inflammation so derms don't get involved that much with those patients so uh, the bridging category, subcutaneous cutaneous LE, again, relatively new guy on the block here, but it's been around long enough that we're starting to see some uh, pretty good trends in terms of what, to, what it means to a patient to express that type of lupus skin inflammation. Uh, typically, the central face is spared. You may see some involvement in SCLE up along the neck and the mandibular areas, but the central face is characteristically spared. Uh, you'll see more on the shoulders, the deltoid, the extensor aspect of the arms, forearms, posterior shoulders, uh, V area of the neck. Uh, they have, we, we, there's these two morphologic forms, the annular subtype and the uh, papillosquamous squamous subtype. Nobody's ever been able to pin down a real meaningful difference between those two morphologies at onset in terms of the risk for systemic disease or antibody associations. It just seemed to be a variation from one to another person how that inflammation is expressed morphologically. Again, the, uh, there was the, the concept of SCL, SCLE was accepted around the world in the early 80s, mostly because there was an antibody marker uh, identified, and that was autoantibody production to the rho ssa uh, LI ssb ribonuclear protein autoantigen system that's uh, illustrated here. Um, the large majority of SLE patients being Rho-antibody positive, a lower frequency being Uh, SSB positive um, but um, DLE classic DLE patients do not have that antibody Uh, that antibody is not enriched the same high levels in uh, acute cutaneous le patients with uh, active SLE. you can see row antibodies in SLE yes but at a a considerably lower rate so for SCLE non-scarring highly photosensitive uh, form of lupus specific skin disease ANA is typically positive Two-thirds, the three-fourths patients are NA positive, and again, Rho and Lie antibodies being uh, relatively uh, good bioantibody markers for this uh, group of th- this subtype of disease. There is this strong genetic background upon which the ability to make Rho and Lie antibodies uh, is present, and that's the uh, it's been referred to as the 8.1 ancestral haplotype, the you know, old HLA1, B8DR3 haplotype. Uh, uh, and it's extended across uh, uh, and, and linkage disequilibrium to other things, promoter polymorphisms in TNF-alpha, uh, C2, C4 gene uh, alleles associated uh, in that haplotype. Uh, the Probably the most clinically important thing outside the skin for SCLE is to realize that these patients have a risk for developing Sjogren syndrome because they, they have the same Uh, immunogenetic background that Sjogren's uh, disease develops on. Of course, Sjogren's is the autoimmune exocrinopathy where the salivary lacrimal glands get attacked and your eyes uh, uh, get dry, uh, your mouth gets dry. But other things can happen inside. There are systemic complications too, like uh, uh, interstitial nephropathy that can occur with longstanding uh, Sjogren's. And we've seen patients present with SCLE, develop Sjogren's over time, and then end up getting a uh, really severe muscle weakness because of hypokalemia, because of uh, interstitial nephropathy uh, causing a potassium wasting state in that setting. Uh, And more recently we've become aware that certain medications seem to be drug triggers for SCLE and that list is really getting long these days. Uh, The thing that I'm seeing a lot these days is protein pump inhibitor uh, drugs uh, Prevacid, which is over-the-counter, amiprazole But the other drugs in that class all have been linked as triggers for SCLE. And I'm beginning to think we've missed the boat on drug indu- induction with that group because everybody in the world's on it, uh, those drugs. And uh, we see chronic eczematous reactions that uh, are triggered by that drug group and, of course, more uh, classic things like Steven Johnson, TEN, so, uh, you know, you look at the drug list, everybody's on Omeprazole because it's, it's over-the-counter, it's inexpensive, and everybody's got heartburn. But that class of drugs can be quite reactive with respect to immunologic hypersensitivity. And I've kind of covered these other points. Generally, SCLE is pretty responsive, like the other forms of lupus-specific skin disease, to the aminoquinol and animal drugs, hydroxychloroquine and quinacrine. And occasionally chloroquine we use, but not not as often. So now chronic cutaneous LE. This is a group of patients that comes and sees us initially because they get a skin rash and they're not sick. So they come they come into the dermatologist self-referred uh, often, and um, so those are patients we'll all see. And again, there are several subtypes in this category, but we're going to just really talk today about classic form of discoid LE. We don't have time to cover these other variants that are considerably less less common. But if you get a handle on classic LE, you can increase your armamentarium by uh, learning a bit about the the variations on the theme that define define these other forms of chronic cutaneous le. Classical LE just localized meaning the neck and above often starting in the scalp uh, but uh, which is a pretty sun-protected area in the conchal bowl of the ear another relatively sun-protected area so DLE is traditionally not as sun-sensitive as acute cutaneous LE and, and subcutaneous LE. cutaneous LE. Um, it can be very aggressive. Within six weeks, you can have atrophic scarring. That scarring can produce permanent uh, scarring alopecia over the areas like the eyebrows or the scalp. It can be a very destructive process, and you want to try to catch it early during the inflammatory stage, treat it, and try to minimize the, the scarring risk. So, the hallmark changes for classic discoid LE are this coin shape around uh, topology, uh, characteristically uh, adherent follicular hyperkeratosis, uh, the old carpet tack sign, a very adherent scale. And if you peel up the edge, you'll see these little tacks, like carpet tacks, on the underside of the scale. And these is the scale going down into the follicles, the uh, affected follicles that you'll see on biopsy. So, we have these wide mouth, patchless follicles. Uh, one of the nice ways to early on to distinguish uh, discoid LE from SCLE is induration. From the outset, DLE is indurated. The biopsy shows a lot of inflammation down into the reticular dermis, even into the subcutaneous tissue at time. Whereas in SCLE, most of the action on biopsy is at the DE junction. So that induration kind of fits with the pathology. Um, Scarring alopecia can be, uh, can be a real problem. As the disease progresses, it can, uh, again, produce atrophic scarring, scarring alopecia, and then darkly pigmented individuals like this, very disabling type pigment contrast. The center of the lesion tends to, to lose pigment. The periphery tends to have post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. You hate to see somebody walk in like this. Uh, after not getting right diagnosis or not having access to the appropriate treatment. So this peripheral uh, hyperpigmentation and central hypopigmentation, atrophic scarring, and be aware that long-term DLE scars are known to have an increased risk for squamous cell carcinoma degeneration. Um, Not sure exactly why. Maybe the loss of pigment predisposes to more... uh, uh, ultraviolet light induced injury in those areas. So we have this above-the-neck-only form, the, the localized form, but you can have it both above and below the neck. And maybe there's a little bit higher risk with a generalized type of DLE for uh, uh, developing clinically significant systemic LE at a later date. But the numbers of the studies, uh, some support that, some don't. Again, on occasion the palms and soles can be affected and, and can get erosive disease which can be quite disabling with uh, DLE in those areas. So the clinical variants are the hypertrophic or verrucus like warty type changes occurring overlying DLE, inflammation of the skin. So verrucus or hypertrophic DLE. Uh, of course, uh, inflammation in the fatty layer primarily, lupus paniculitis, lupus profundus. Um, and then the kind of controversial areas of lupus tumidus, uh, LE edematous. They may be the same thing, LE being an older term. Uh, but these uh, lesions that are very succulent around the upper body, neck, face, uh, that don't have interface dermatitis, and probably should have never been included in the LE-specific skin disease category uh, because of lacking the interface dermatitis. But but a lot of people around the world still believe they belong somewhere fairly closely linked uh, to LE. Chilblains LE, more acryl, uh, perivascular inflammatory infiltrative type changes uh, that are chronic and smoldering, and on a rare occasion, kind of a DLE-looking change in the hard, soft palate uh, areas of the oral mucosa. So classic DLE, typically scarring, less photosensitive, as I've mentioned, often ANA negative at the outset. The one thing that's really confusing in this area is the fact that you know, SLE patients, once they've declared themselves as SLE patients, maybe five years later, will have a crop of discoid LE lesions pop up uh, as part of their disease activity. Um, and clinically, pathologically, immunologically, everything, they look like the kind of DLE lesions that occur in people who are otherwise healthy at the outset of their disease. So realize that if you just get a population of SLE patients, 20 to 30% of those at some point in their disease course will have had DLE lesions. Uh, So it's not that DLE lesions are just segregate with a really good prognosis, it's how they first appear that really relates to prognosis. They appear initially with no other disease activity markers, that's a good, better prognosis than in developing 10 years later and a year later they their own dialysis because of kidney failure from lupus nephritis uh, less than 5% of the uh, as we've mentioned before uh, of uh, patients with isolated uh, DLE lesions as the presenting manifestation have risk for systemic LE LA, uh, later in life. Okay, screening for systemic LE disease activity and damage in cutaneous LE patients, an important part of our job as we see these patients. I've got some complex uh, graphical dis- displays here that I'm not going to have time to go over, and plus we couldn't read these fine print anyway, but they're in your syllabus. This is the ANA test, which can be a little bit daunting in terms of how to interpret it, how to order it and how to interpret it. Um, uh, And there's a lot of money wasted in that process. I think the Academy has recently come uh, agreed with the uh, rheumatology uh, leadership that uh, this is one of the tests that you shouldn't just do willy-nilly in terms of cost savings, you know, Uh, this new push to be cautious or prudent in our laboratory testing and our radiologic screening that you really need to have a good reason to order an ANA test, not just because somebody says that they're photosensitive, or it has to be something that leads you to think that there may be a reasonable chance that they they have uh, uh, ruminologic type of underlying autoimmunity. Uh, if, you're, if you want to learn a little bit more about the ANA and practical uses of it, I think that algorithm would help you. Um, How do you go about doing other lab tests to screen for systemic LE uh, activity in a patient who shows up with a DLE lesion on their scalp? Um, You can do it relatively inexpensively. Uh, Just routine tests give you a lot of information. Uh, CBC with differential serum uh, creatinine level, total serum protein levels, uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, simple urinalysis. Uh, uh, DNA antibody screen, SM antibody screen. If you add all those up, the last time I did it was 2001, uh, total was $150, you know, pretty good deal. Uh, You don't have to do every auto antibody out there at the outset, that can be costly. uh, But with a reasoned approach, you can do a pretty good screen. CBC gives you three indices right off for systemic, you know, an AMA, or rather a leukopenia, anemia, and uh, thrombocytopenia, so you, some of these tests can, if all of these are negative in a cutaneous LE patient, you can just forget about systemic LE in that setting. Um, and the a question comes up, well how often should you rescreen these patients uh, that might be developing SLE? There's no good answer there. We used to do it every six to 12 months, but I think many people now, after the first couple of years of the illness, just don't worry about this. Uh, if a patient's developing SLE, it's usually not quiescent clinically. A patient's gonna start feeling bad. That's the key to go back and reassess lab values uh, for possible uh, SLE activity. So a patient's feeling fine, they don't know arthralgia, they know fatigue, Uh, And and it's just their skin problem. They're not, they don't have significant SLA activity. Okay, treatment of cutaneous LE. Another busy slide here that probably be more helpful for you just looking at the syllabus. Kind of a a staged approach. We always start in terms of treating cutaneous LE with topicals, that's the safest way always compared to systemic therapy. But topicals alone usually don't work for, for cutaneous LE of any sort, LE specific skin disease. They might help, but they don't really put a patient in remission. Uh, so, sunlight uh, protection, UV protection, sunscreens, broad spectrum sunscreens, all of which are sunscreens are broad these days. Uh, physical protection is important. Uh, Take away exacerbating uh, aspects of their disease and cigarette smoking can be an aggravating factor for cutaneous LE inflammation. So another reason in your armamentarium to try to talk somebody into trying to stop cigarette smoking. Uh, Use topical steroids, can use the stronger steroids even on the face if you rotate them every two weeks with a nonsteroidal immunomodulator, uh, we've done that over the years, and even with class one steroids, it's, it's really unusual to have problems, as long as the patient will faithfully rotate them. So, so systemic therapy is usually needed, hydroxychloroquine alone is the first drug, uh, and then when that doesn't work, hydroxychloroquine plus uh, quinacrine, uh, to get a combined antimalarial effect can help. Remember, these drugs work very slowly. You have to give hydroxychloroquine at least six weeks to reach blood equilibrium levels, where it can have its full effect. So you have to do some hand-holding with patients in this regard. If you want to give them a burst and taper, a prednisone to kind of cool them off in the meantime, that's okay, but you want to you know, get them off steroids and maintain them on these safer drugs that can be used over time. Uh, the list as you go down the, st- the truly animal aerial refractory patients, you uh, you can use retinoids, uh, Accutane, Soriatane, although I-, I don't think that's a really good treatment, in that they usually rebound very quickly after stopping those drugs, and those drugs have. Uh, risks and costs, uh, and they don't induce remissions, durable remissions, they're more anti-inflammatory in LE, has been my experience. Dapsone occasionally will help in things like uh, active SCLE. Thalidomide, the old drug, is a wonderful way to treat difficult cutaneous LE. Within two weeks, people are better, it's amazing. But of course, there's a lot of hurdles to using thalidomide and, and women of childbearing potential, of course. Uh, nowadays, it's the cost. Since uh and the newer analog lamillamide have been shown to be cancer drugs, you know, they're, they're approved for myeloma, uh, they're all $100,000 a year now, uh, like other cancer drugs. So it's all, unless the patient qualifies for the patient assistance program uh, that the cell gene has, you can pretty much forget about using those drugs. And then methotrexate, azathioprine, uh, CELCEP, you know, the poison du jour for those really refractory patients. Uh, Sometimes you have to use uh, stronger drugs uh, to keep them, uh, in terms of their skin disease activity, under control. Springtime in Utah Valley, taken just about six weeks ago, a trip south from Salt Lake Valley. Uh, You can see the green grass and the trees marching up the slopes toward the snow-covered peaks. I enjoy outdoor photography. It's one of my hobbies that I really enjoy in such a scenic place as uh, as Utah. Dermatomyositis. Um, one of the members uh, of, of that group of diseases has characteristic skin changes as uh, part of their disease. That's dermatomyositis. Um, and, uh, you know, we're often, these patients don't know that they have dermatomyositis, they got a rash and they're itching, so they come see the dermatologist or the Uh, 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 the PAs in the dermatology office for this kind of problem. So you need to be aware of uh, how to make this diagnosis as early as you can, because there's some significant systemic risks associated with new onset dermatomyositis. So a member of the idiopathic inflammatory myopathies group uh, has these unique patterns of inflammation in the skin, and in the skeletal muscle, especially the, especially the proximal muscles, the shoulder girdle, and the hip girdle musculature. When you think about, uh, you know, when you think about lupus and skin. You think about the butterfly rash, and, and dermatomyositis is the heliotrope rash. Uh, it's this lilac-colored, reddish-purple coloration that occurs around the eyes, particularly the upper eyelids, that you see on the left side of this slide. Heliotrope is just a is a flower it's got the color the same color or hue as does the skin change in a light-complected individual and it's interesting the heliotrope flower kind of follows the sun you know throughout the progress of the sun during the day and dermatomyositis skin disease is 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 a photosensitive form of skin disease but the heliotrope is nothing magic about that it just relates to the color of the inflammation There are some other, like in cutaneous, uh, like in lupus, there's some, you know, like the LE nonspecific skin diseases, there are some uh, uh, skin changes that occur in dermatomyositis on rare occasion that are different than these hallmark changes. Uh, They're listed in your syllabus, but we're not going to have time to spend with those today. We're going to focus on the really disease characteristic uh, features which are often referred to as the hallmark inflammatory changes in dermatomyositis in the skin. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a it's a characteristic change. This this macular erythema that has this red purplish color, kind of a lichen planus type hue to it, but it's in a characteristic distribution. Such that when you see enough of these elements come together, it's unique. You can make a diagnosis of dermatomyositis, skin disease. We all do a biopsy to make sure there's an interface dermatitis there, uh, but. Uh, it's a very, very, you can walk in the door and, and make the diagnosis halfway across the room. And we've had first-year residents, dermatology residents, join us in some of our specialty clinics over the years. And within two or three weeks of seeing patients with us, they'll come out to present a new patient. Ah, oh, it's another dermatomyositis patient. Yeah? Because they can pick up on it pretty quickly if you know what you're looking for. So it, the regional anatomy with which this type of inflammation occurs is very helpful in the diagnosis, as you'll see. Uh, again, there's interface dermatitis, very similar to what you can see in the more superficial forms of lupus-specific skin disease, both acute cutaneous LE and subacute cutaneous LE, and dermatomyositis can look very much the same under the microscope. We actually did a blinded study in Dallas way back there where, where we, the clinicians, submitted you know, cases in a blinded fashion to the dermatopathologist uh, there, and, and they couldn't tell the difference uh, on objective criteria. Um, The lupus band is typically negative in DM. That's one thing that can help, but occasionally dermatomyositis can have immunoglobulin complement deposits at DE junction, so it's not an all-or-nothing phenomenon. Heliotrope rash, again, this violaceous discoloration in the periocular tissue. There's a differential diagnosis for everything, and and true here, contact dermatitis might do this. Uh, uh, There's some rare... uh, uh, tropical diseases that have said to produce similar changes, but we don't see all those things every day. When we see this come in, our, our thoughts start to focus on, on Dermatomyositis. Uh, paritic violaceous erythema of the scalp can be a very helpful uh, sign to look at their scalp, ask them about their, their scalp. When you look, you don't see psoriasis scale, you don't see seborrheic dermatitis scale, it's macular violaceous erythema. And patients complain of bitter, bitter paritis and sometimes burning qualities. Uh, almost like a neuropathy type uh, symptom, more so than just itching. And the scalp tends to be one of the most itchy areas. Uh, The V sign, the open collared area, one of the photo exposed areas of the body, again dermatomyositis like forms of lupus is photo aggravated. Uh, So we always check them in these areas. Next slide. The shawl sign, the involvement of, of the Nape of the neck and the posterior shoulders as if a shawl were laying across those areas. That's a favorite area for expression of this disease process. Extensor aspect of the arms and forearms, dorsal hands. Elbows and knees, these stretch areas as I've mentioned. uh, Something about the microvasculopathy of dermatomyositis seems to be expressed more so in areas of skin that stretch compared to other areas, over the knuckles, elbows, knees very characteristic changes uh, when they're present. Uh, over the knuckles, uh, these atrophic papules, usually over the dorsal, lateral aspect of the knuckles, more so than right in the middle, uh, that to have this almost uh, Wickham-Stria-like look to the atrophic centers. Uh, just, this is the classic Gottrin's papules. And again, there's really nothing else in dermatology that does this in this particular location. And when you see this change and these periungual nail fold changes, uh, which dermatomy- is characteristic of dermatomyositis, you don't have to do anything else. In my experience, nothing else simulates this set of changes in, in dermatology. And again, these nail fold changes can be very marked. The problem is there's microvascular injury in dermatomyositis skin, just like uh, microvascular injury occurs in scleroderma. Uh, and these these big giant blood vessels that are 100 times larger than the capillaries that normally inhabit here that are too small to be seen with the n dye, but sometimes you can see these uh, damaged vessels very clearly and this central uh, avascular kind of sclerotic area. And if you've got your dermoscope with you, go to the next slide, uh, you can see this quite nicely uh, under just 10x uh, polarized light microscopy. Uh, This was a little study we did, dermatomyositis and normals at the same magnification. The asterisk marks the junction between the cuticle and the nail plate. Uh, And uh, you can see, this is what the little hairpin-like terminal capillary loops normally look like at the uh, nail fold area. And you can see by comparison these large, torturous uh, vessels and a lot of avascular areas in between. Again, uh, this disease is expressed as a spectrum of illness as, we've, uh, as a theme we mentioned earlier. And uh, some patients come to dermatologists first because they only have the skin changes. Some patients go to the rheumatologist or the neurologist first because they're weak and they don't have anything else. And then of course there's the patients in between that have both skin and systemic uh, uh, type uh, uh, characteristic disease activity. Uh, the skin only part of this spectrum is a newer concept in the early 90s um, and used to be known as dermatomyositis sine myositis that term had been around when I was a resident for a number of years and everybody knew about it but there was nothing published on it and nobody had an idea really there was no data relating to it it was these skin skin only patients that occasionally showed up in dermatology clinics with dermatomyositis skin changes Uh, This amyopathic DM term was coined to try to bring some interest, some modern interest and data generation to this group. And it's been somewhat successful. We now have quite a bit of of, uh, systematically uh, accumulated data on this skin only subgroup of patients and some interesting trends have uh, turned out as you'll see. So it's uh, polymyositis or inclusion body myositis when it's muscle only. Uh, classic dermatomyositis in the middle of the spectrum, skin and muscle, uh, and then the amyopathic or clinically amyopathic uh, designation for the patients who have skin disease for much longer periods of time than is typical for classic dermatomyositis. In classic dermatomyositis, usually the most common presentation, patients have skin inflammation and muscle symptoms from the outset, about 60% of the cases, as you see here. Uh, there's a subgroup of patients who start with just the skin changes, but within a couple of weeks or just a couple of months, they clearly develop uh, muscle uh, inflammation and, and symptoms related to their muscles. So that's just another way of, of, of the disease uh, showing itself. There's this subgroup of patients that uh, develop the skin disease and really never get clinically significant muscle disease for long periods of time, two years or longer of uh, Followed one woman initially in Dallas and then in Oklahoma City uh, for 30 years uh, (laughs) um, where she came in as a teenager and uh, had skin-only disease, and we saw her back uh, literally 30 years later. uh, And and she was an exercise instructor, still had intermittent problems and sun exposure with her dermatomyositis skin flaring, but had never developed any muscle disease or interstitial lung disease. She may be an outlier. We don't really know what the long term risk is, but certainly there are patients who seem never to be uh, uh, at risk for developing clinically significant muscle inflammation or interstitial lung disease starting out as in this amyopathic subtype. Next slide. Uh, the, 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 how often does that occur? Some studies, uh, maybe 20 to 30 percent of the entire world's population of dermatomyositis is in this amyopathic subgroup. Uh, and they're never counted in the traditional epidemiologic studies of, of dermatomyositis because by definition, the rheumatology criteria for a diagnosis of dermatomyositis, you've got to have evidence of muscle disease. So what do we know at this point about this? the patients presenting with this skin-only subtype for six months or longer? That's kind of the period of time where it's really unusual for classic dermatomyositis uh, patients to go six months before they develop their muscle inflammation. Uh, But so the the study criteria is six months uh, cut off for the the definition of amyopathic dermatomyositis. Uh, It's uh, more common than previously thought. Uh, There's a finite risk for interstitial lung disease occurring, sometimes fulminant interstitial lung disease and ARDS-type deaths from overwhelming inflammation in lungs in people who have the skin changes of DM but have never had muscle uh, inflammation to the point of clinical recognition. Uh, ANA-positive, the traditional myositis autoantibodies are negative in these amyopathic patients, but there's some interesting uh, new antibodies being studied in this regard. And uh, they're not really available for clinical in for routine clinical labs yet, but the MDA-5, the Melanoma Differentiation Antigen-5 uh, specificity of autoantibodies that's been detected by immunoprecipitation studies Uh, is correlating pretty strongly in in various parts of the world, studies from different parts of the world, with risk for interstitial lung disease in uh, the setting of amyopathic dermatomyositis. And then another issue about following, managing uh, patients over time is the possibility of this uh, dermatomyositis being a perineoplastic phenomenon, an internal malignancy lurking and coming out clinically evident six months after your dermatomyositis presents. Uh, We don't see that in childhood onset disease, but adult onset disease, especially people at midlife and beyond, 20-25% risk of having associated internal malignancy with classic dermatomyositis. Still trying to figure out what the relative risk is for the amyopathic dermatomyositis patients, but it can occur in We work up everybody the same with respect to malignancy workup with a new, newly presenting classic or amyopathic DM patient. Uh, Screening for interstitial lung disease. Uh, This is still being worked on. You know, uh, some parts of the world, interstitial lung disease occurs in as many as 40% of dermatomyositis patients, Uh, Asian populations, like in Japan. In North America, it's about 10% of uh, dermatomyositis patients getting really clinically significant involvement in their lungs. So there's some genetic factors probably, or and or environmental factors at play there. Um, Vicki Worth has been doing very careful pulmonary function uh, studies on her classic and amyopathic dermatomyositis patients at Penn. And seeing an alarmingly high rate of evidence of interstitial, low-grade interstitial lung disease in the amyopathic uh, uh, DM patients. So we're starting, you know, all new patients get baseline pulmonary function tests in our clinic with uh, diffusion capacity as a baseline. And we, depending on symptom development over time, uh, come back and repeat that. If somebody's symptomatic in their lungs with their they need... Uh, high-resolution CT scan, that's the way to get at uh, clear evidence of interstitial uh, lung disease. The antibodies, again, ANA is usually positive, both amyopathic uh, DM and classic DM. As I mentioned, the myositis-specific antibodies are pretty uncommon, even in classic DM, uh, but very rare to non-existent in the amyopathic subtype. We do have these new antibodies being developed, this MDA5 antibody correlating with lung, uh, risk for interstitial lung disease, and there's a separate antibody system, actually two antibody systems, the NXP2 and the uh, what's called transcription intermediary, intermediary factory uh, 1 gamma uh, antibody being correlated with risk for internal malignancy. So we may have biomarkers in the future for both internal malignancy risk and interstitial lung disease in, in, in this uh, area. And both are sorely needed. Treatment of cutaneous DM, this is the same slide I showed you before, but I've just kind of in red shown the differences. Our therapeutic approach is quite similar in DM for skin inflammation as it is uh, for cutaneous lupus. We use antipyritics more because lupus skin inflammation is typically not paritic, whereas it's often paritic and sometimes severely so in dermatomyositis. Uh, thalidomide, there's not much evidence that it helps in cutaneous DM, uh, nor retinoids, dapsone. We do see patients occasionally uh, with cutaneous DM do well on dapsone. Uh, uh, that, there's a couple of case reports in the literature on that, and I've you know, tried that over the years, and some patients do quite well. Uh, and it's a, you know, a safer than moving up the ladder to things like methotrexate, azathioprine, uh, cyclosporine, mycophenolate. Uh, But this, we have some other big guns now in DM. Uh, The TNF-alpha inhibitors uh, can be of benefit, uh, even though the trials have not been all totally glowing. And rituximab, the same thing, the antibody that depletes B cells from the circulation for long periods of time have shown good responses and and rheumatologists routinely use rituximab in difficult DM, even though the original clinical trials that were done didn't meet primary endpoint. But there's a role for for those biologics in managing difficult patients. I don't have listed on here IVIG. It's just an oversight. IVIG is very useful in difficult dermatomyositis patients uh, in terms of relieving symptoms in a relatively safe fashion. There are some risks for IVIG, yes, but Uh, The main risk is the cost (laughs) to our society. It's a very high-cost drug. But it's a way to bail somebody out. I've got several people I'm just starting to put at home. I'm putting on uh, IVIG because they've been through animal aerials and failed. They've been on Dapsone. It hasn't helped them. Uh, They're they're still on Prednisone, um, uh, Methotrexate, and they're still having activity, and, and IVIG can cool them off, and then after you after you stop the IVIG, some of these other drugs can maintain a remission that they weren't able to induce. So that's a, it's a really good way to get somebody some relief in a really difficult situation where they're continually symptomatic over long periods of time. Okay, well that's gonna be my last slide because I know I'm at the end of this hour, and uh, this was the transition slide for going into scleroderma. So. Uh, I didn't think I would get into that, but uh, it, it's a lot to cover properly on those three diseases uh, in one hour. But I have spent some time on the syllabus in terms of the, ver- the, cl- the key clinical things that you want to remember, how to distinguish localized scleroderma morphea from systemic sclerosis, and there's some key things on the bedside exam in the skin that can help you a lot there, as well as some uh, testing that can help you. Um, and uh, you want to know how to treat Morphe because those are, pa- those are skin disease patients. They don't have significant risk for systemic disease. Uh, but we don't have good treatments for any forms of systemic sclerosis. You know, it's a miserable disease still. Every year there's a new drug that's being touted, and, and there's a few on the horizon now. But we don't have data yet to really say we have what would be considered a good drug for systemic sclerosis at, at, at its various stages. So I just have to refer you to that, uh, the syllabus, and for those of you who might be at Deer Valley next month, I'll de- I, pl- I will definitely start with scleroderma. So thank you for your kind attention. We have a few minutes for questions Will we move ahead. Thank you for your lecture. I'm curious, is there any difference in the seri- uh, serology picture of a patient um, who develops lupus that has a, that's on a PPI versus yeah. not on a PPI. Yeah. Is there any difference in that picture? Uh, that's been looked at pretty carefully. They, drug-induced SCLE versus idiopathic SCLE, whether it's the PPI or any of the other drugs, there's only one group uh, from Asia said to see some differences between those two groups clinically, immunologically. Everybody else in the world can't make the distinction, including ourselves. Uh, the drug-induced get row antibody at the same rates, uh, they don't get histone antibodies. You know, that's the old antibody marker for drug-induced SLE is histone antibodies, but that's not true for drug-induced SCLE. Um, I don't think there's a, a recognizable difference myself. It's an index of suspicion. And I honestly think that a lot of our early patients back in the 70s in Dallas that we collected in that initial, uh, initially published cohort uh, I'm thinking back of one woman who was on hydrochlorothiazide, uh, you know, and she was one of the original 27 patients, and she, she asked about that. Could this new medicine have been a problem? And we didn't know at that time that that form of cutaneous lupus was susceptible to being aggravated by certain drug hypersensitivity reactions. So um, the long answer is we, I don't think there's a, an easy way to distinguish those. It's index of suspicion. Uh, the imputability being the classes of drugs that are most commonly been associated in cardiovascular drugs, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, thiazides, and of course, turbinophene and dermatology, and now the protein pump inhibitors, I think, are a, kind of a sleeping, going to be end up being a sleeping giant in that area. If you do end up taking them off the drug, how soon do you see? serology picture change? We did the literature review, it, it kind of varied on the drug class. With the cardiovascular drugs, it was often long periods of you know, three to, two to three months. And some of the chemotherapy uh, reports of drug induction of SCLE, they got better quite quickly. So I normally, uh, I, give, I, I tell a patient, we're gonna have to be off this medicine as a test for minimum of two months to fairly judge whether the drug was uh, really causing the problem or not. And I I say it's like uh, pulling the troops out of Afghanistan when the immune response is really cranked up in the skin in a drug-induced fashion. Uh, It doesn't just go away when you stop the drug. It takes a while to to calm down. It takes a couple of months for examinous drug eruptions and other types of drug phenomena that we see. One one last question. And so um, with your experience, how often do you see chronic urticaria present as... LE? I've seen two patients over almost 40 years now seeing LE patients where uh, chronic urticaria ended up seeming to be the presenting manifestation of SLE um, and it's certainly described but it must be very rare and to do an ANA and uh, somebody with urticaria it's got to be a waste of money you know ask them did your joints hurt are you fatigued and if they say yes then i do an ANA but just a Blanketly do ANA in that setting, I think, is probably a waste of resources. It's very, very rare. Now, urticarial vasculitis, we're going to talk about that in the next hour. That's a little bit different.